Hello and welcome to the second season of Revise, Rebut and Resubmit, a podcast that explores early career researchers' experiences in publishing their first academic paper and which celebrates this important milestone. My name is Jennifer Fitchett and I'm an Associate Professor of Physical Geography at the University of the Witwatersrand in South Africa, an avid science communicator and a still, I would argue, relatively young academic with a passion for breaking down the barriers and unnecessary mysticism in the publication process. Each episode, I interview a new person on their journey in writing, revising, rebutting, and resubmitting their first academic paper to publish their first piece of peer-reviewed work. This podcast is very generously supported by Genus, the DSI NRF Center of Excellence for Paleosciences. Dr. J.J. Gregory is a lecturer of human geography at the University of Pretoria. He completed his PhD through the University of Johannesburg in the height of the pandemic and while working at Northwest University Mafeking campus. His research broadly focuses on urban geography with a particular interest in creative industries and studentification. J.J. is the chair of the Society of South African Geographers Students and New Professionals Group and is involved in ongoing policy work around student housing in urban centers of South Africa. JJ's first academic paper was published in Local Economy, reflecting on creative industries and urban regeneration in the case of the Mabineng precinct, Johannesburg. He has since published extensively on creative industries, studentification, and even Instagram. Welcome JJ, and thank you so much for joining us on this podcast. Thanks so much, Jennifer, for the opportunity, and I look forward to sharing ideas with you. Wonderful. So let's begin at the beginning with your first academic paper that was published. It was quite a few years ago now, but I wonder if you can think back to the process of writing that first paper on the Mabineng precinct and where that paper came from and how it morphed into becoming a full academic paper and your first peer-reviewed academic paper. Certainly. It was my first paper from my master's. And just to provide a little bit of context of where I was at uh, during that time, I was working as a contract temporary lecturer at the University of Johannesburg at the time, studying full-time, but also deeply immersed in my research, master's research, which was focused on creative industries and urban regeneration in Johannesburg. And luckily, I had the opportunity to travel to the International Geographical Conference, the Urban Commission Conference in Ireland in August 2015. And that really helped shape and inform a lot of the research that I was doing around the topic for my master's. And I actually submitted a draft paper for the conference proceedings to the conference. And it was torn apart a little bit Um, (laughs) and luckily I had a really great supervisor who who guided me and said well take the feedback that you got from this and rework it and then in a few months resubmit it somewhere else you don't have to use it or publish it in a conference proceedings it's really good stuff it's original novel research rejig it a little bit and then rather hold out for a journal and and publish in in a journal. So, and that's what I did. So I 
re-looked at it and and applied a much more critical uh, lens because that was what was lacking at at the initial draft level. I wasn't critical enough. And a few months later, submitted it. And luckily, there was an opportunity also for a special issue. And I think I have to emphasize the importance of having access to networks and having access to the opportunities of special issues, because it's really an incredible foot in the door if you're not an established researcher yet to get the opportunity to publish in decent journals and still go through the rigorous process of peer review. So fortunately, there was a special issue for local economy in 2016. I had reworked the paper and then submitted it to local economy and it was accepted. The review process, if I remember, was one reviewer came back and also asked me to once again be a bit more critical, particularly on the, the aspect of displacement and gentrification that was occurring in my study area. And then I just strengthened that angle and that argument once again. But I do feel going through the rejection of the, the conference paper really helped shape this paper into a much stronger paper with a much stronger argument for the local economy edition. So that was my first paper. And I was lucky, luckily enough, it was also solo authored. So I had very little assistance in writing from my supervisor at the time. My supervisor really left me on my own, which I'm incredibly grateful for, because at the end of the day, I can say that I have written it. I've gone through the blood, sweat and tears of having written my first paper. It wasn't majorly assisted and or copy edited by a, a supervisor. So I am incredibly thankful for that because it just helps that is the process. You, if you have something that's being written for you, you're not really learning or growing in the process of writing and publishing. You have to go through the blood, sweat and tears and challenges of rejection and going through draft after draft after draft to improve your craft. So yeah, that's my first experience. There is so much that I want to touch on from that, and it could be in a podcast episode on its own. But I think the first thing to say is congratulations that your first paper was solo authored, because as you said, there is a lot that supervisors often do in a one end of the spectrum, literally just taking your data and writing it up because it is a more efficient way of doing it. But through to the other end of the spectrum where they would be engaging constantly in framing the writing style and framing the narrative mm -hmm. and bringing in that critical thinking. But as you've said, if they had done that, you wouldn't have had that learning experience. And it would mean that at some future point in time, you would have that process of trying to adapt and trying to take the reins and probably being quite surprised at that point by how difficult the process really is. Whereas this way you got a full understanding of what you were getting yourself into in academia from that very first paper. And I think that's tremendously valuable. Definitely. I'm so thankful that it wasn't a case of just, well, here's my data, please help me write this paper and let's get on with it. So obviously the platform was provided, especially having access to my supervisor's network and having access to uh, the special issue. All of that is obviously an incredibly supportive environment, but he allowed me enough freedom to fail, which I think is incredibly important as an emerging academic. And we often 
fear the rejection or fear the failure, but that is part of the growth process. And we should see it as that. We shouldn't see it as a personal, we're not capable or we are not able to do this, but we should just see it as a growth process. And I think that's what my experience was during that first publication. Absolutely. And I think it speaks volumes to your supervisor and his own integrity, but also his passion for supervision and for training, because there was a lot of input there in encouraging you to go to the conference, in sitting with you and encouraging you to reframe, rewrite and submit it to a journal, giving you some input in terms of what it means to critically rethink the paper. And then, as you've mm. mentioned, those networks and the ability to then be able to identify and submit to a special issue where often those are quite closed off. And just being able to say, this is there's a bigger picture here and there's a long game here. And at any point there, he could have said, well, I'm now putting in so much work that I should be an author on it. And there's a lot of debate and there is a bit of difference between the humanities and the sciences about what constitutes mm. authorship. But I think particularly where somebody has their eyes set on academia, and as you've mentioned, you were already working in a contract lecturing post at that point. But in saying, yes, he could attach himself to the paper. He could take the reins at any point. But in the long run, this is a potential future collaborator who he could work with for the next few years to decades. And I think that really speaks volumes to his integrity, but also to what we should be looking at in terms of co-publishing with our students and models of supervision. Definitely. And I mean, the next paper, obviously, we worked on together and he helped craft the next one, which obviously he was a co-author on. So what I appreciated from the relationship or the supervision relationship was that the, the publications that I worked on extensively on my own, the opportunity was allowed to be a solo author because I also published a book chapter from the Masters, which was solo authored. And then there were two other articles, if I remember correctly, that were co-authored with my supervisor. So I think it was a very fair balance of him also getting what he needed out of the experience, because obviously it's a lot of work goes into the supervision process. So the merit of having your name added or helping to craft some of the research Definitely, it is needed for that sort of co-authorship, but it's important that you highlight the differences between humanities or the social sciences and the physical sciences, where it is not always the case. Supervisors are automatically just added onto a paper. Yeah. And I know, for example, in history, it's not the norm at all. A supervisor would never dare to add their name to a student's work. So it's very dif uh, discipline specific as well, but I also think it's also individually specific linked to the individual, how established the supervisor is. Do they really need their name to be added onto that publication or do they already have enough of other things going on? So, yeah. But I think also when you talk about history and I think it's very true in many of the sort of core humanity subjects is that, there, your product or your output is very much about your own independent thinking. Mm -hmm. And your supervisor encourages you to critique your own thinking and to extend your own thinking. But as we move through into the social sciences and into the pure sciences, often it is more collaborative work uh, mm -hmm. insofar as sharing lab space and resources, training in terms of how you would 
collect a particular type of sample or the statistical tests that you'd apply or framing the questions that you'd use in a questionnaire. And so I think there are really interesting ways to think about what goes into a paper. And that's really what you've unpacked there is saying, sometimes it really is just your work. It's your thinking, it's your process, it's your mm. writing from beginning to end. And then other times it's something that you co-produce as a team. And I don't think in either case, it's really about somebody pinning their name to it, but rather about trying to understand where these thresholds are of, of what constitutes an intellectual contribution. Because if we're looking at something like the Singapore Declaration, it really is about intellectual contribution and very clearly that you can't just pay your way onto a paper by saying, here's money to go and buy your lab supplies or to go and get something analyzed. It's not about saying, I've run this through a machine and here's your output, so my name goes on it, but that you are able to engage intellectually and make a contribution. Mm. And some of that happens through supervision, but in any individual paper, I think there also does need to be a very clear role of that intellectual contribution. Definitely, yeah. So the other big thing I wanted to touch on from that first experience is around these different types of publication outlets or platforms. And I think for many people who haven't yet published a paper, you just see this huge world of journals and you have no idea how to pick which journals to submit to and their impact factors and their SNP scores. And as you're mentioning here, when you're writing that first paper, often the best way to really show that your work has meaning and importance is through things such as conference proceedings, special issues, edited books. And often those do require networks to be able to get your foot in the door but they allow you a degree of freedom to not have to justify to as great an extent the basic purpose of the work you're doing. Whereas if you were to submit to an open journal where there isn't a call for a special issue or where you hadn't had the experience of trying to write up a conference proceedings, a lot more work goes into framing the why of the paper. Definitely. And, and that is a lot more challenging, obviously, when you're starting out is finding the correct fit. Yeah. And I'm currently busy with a paper that I've not really written with a particular journal in mind. And now I'm in the process of thinking, oh, well, now I've written this wonderful paper, but where am I going to position it or where am I going to send it to? So I've identified a particular journal and now I'm reworking the paper to fit the style of the journal, specifically methodologically, but also the big why. And what is it that would make this a good fit? So it is definitely a lot more challenging than a special issue or a edited book chapter. So it is having a decent understanding of what is out there. And that only really comes from reading widely and extensively in your field, dotting down. I've got a little black book, literally a little black book <laughs> that I write interesting journals, the names of interesting journals that I've come across that I feel are in a similar style that I usually write, that are similar to my way of thinking or understanding and conceptualizing. And I think you, you create a list of these journals that you're potentially interested in. And those are the ones that you then pursue. And if you don't come right, you just 
revise and resubmit. Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> um, not with that particular journal, then the next one on the list that has a similar focus. Yeah. So I don't know if that, that answers your question. It's just every time I read a paper, I immediately know that, okay, I'll never publish something in this journal because obviously they're much more, they're way too quantitatively focused or these are, the, these are not the type of methodological approaches that I would take. So it's really finding the fit that fits with your style of writing, your way of conceptualizing and, and taking it from there. It's not easy. It is overwhelming. There's a lot of journals out there. And it's also, it's distinguishing between also at, at your post level, what is required of you. So at my post level, as a lecturer at the moment, I don't have to actually particularly aim very high. You can aim for a quartile four, three or four, but I try not to. I try to push and look for decent journals that are at least quartile two. So it's also being aware of impact factors, it's being aware of those quartiles, it's being aware of the quality of the journal and also being very incredibly wary of possible predatory journals. So it's understanding the publishing industry to one extent of what is a good quality versus perhaps poor quality and understanding where your research would be suited or what, what, where it will be best positioned. Yeah. Uh, so it, it requires a bit of research on its own, researching publications, researching journals, their impact factor, but also going into the guidelines of each of those journals and identifying whether or not your research actually is a good fit, uh, theoretically, methodologically, conceptually. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the idea of having a physical black book is brilliant because when we try and think of the best journal on the spot, when we're writing up a grant application, or as you said, when you've written up a paper and now you don't know where to send it, or perhaps if a paper's been rejected and now you don't know where to send it, it's really difficult in that moment to think sensibly and to be able to weigh up this huge array of journals out there. And to have a little black book where you've written down a bunch of names and perhaps a few notes on the types of approaches that they use or the length of papers, really mm. does help you in those moments to say, oh, of course, I really wanted to submit to this journal at some point in time. Mm. This particular paper would fit that quite well. And I think that that's a much better approach than just having all of these names swirling around in our minds or going back to the DHET lists of ISI and Scopus and all the rest and trawling through those with keywords. You really don't get that kind of clarity that you're talking about of what kinds of methods do they use? Are they more quantitatively focused? You don't often get that just from the name of a journal. And mm. sometimes you don't even get it from the little blurb on the landing page on their website. Yeah, definitely. And I find it quite useful when they do have the author's guidelines or at least just a little blurb where they say, well, this is what we focus on and we will not consider. I also like when they say we will not consider X. X, Y, and Z, because then you know, okay, well, obviously my paper doesn't fit that profile. Let me look for another journal. Yeah. So I'm now moving away slightly from your first paper, still talking about some of your early work, but talking specifically about a paper that you wrote about Instagram. And for the audience who might not know JJ, 
alongside all of his academic work, and he, as you've heard, has been working as a lecturer at UJ and then Northwest and now at University of Pretoria. But he's also had a really, really passionate engagement with the Instagram community and how we use Instagram in urban spaces to celebrate our environments, to explore our environments. And leading from that, he has written an academic paper. And I think many of us hope that at some point in time, we might be able to formalize our hobby by getting an academic credit out of it. But I think there probably are some pros and cons to it. So let's start by just getting some background, JJ, on what that paper was about and how it came to be. Yeah, thanks for that context. I think it's important because quite often people are a bit confused when they, like you've written a paper on Instagram, what about Instagram? So just a bit of context, I would consider myself an amateur photographer. I'm very passionate about urban photography and street photography. And I would say from about 2012, 2011, 2012, I regularly went on what we would call Instameets or Instagram walks, where a group of random strangers would meet up in a particular part of the inner city of Johannesburg, and we would go exploring. We would walk through the city, taking photographs, documenting what we see. And I did this actively from about 2012, right through to about 2017, almost every weekend. And Around about 2016, I was taking a gap year between my master's and my PhD, and I wanted to do something fun and creative and out there. The black cloud of studying and doing your master's was not there anymore, and obviously I hadn't started the PhD yet, so I really wanted to do something fun. And I do believe that research can be fun. You can do interesting, fun topics that actually do contribute and are important topics to be researched. I think a lot of serious things have to be researched, but a lot of things that are worth merit are not looked at and and, and have to be explored as well. But in any case, so in 2016, I was also thinking through what I wanted to do for a PhD. And at the time, I was actually considering something on social media in the city or Instagram and the city and studentification. So I thought, well, let me do a trial run. Let me co-publish this interesting research, which I'll expand on in a moment with a colleague of mine in the geography department and see if this is a topic I would be interested in to pursue a possible PhD in. So it was incredibly fun. We really looked at the use of social media apps such as Instagram and how people engage in the urban space because of that application. So in a nutshell, the research basically looked at how the youth or the young people would access the city, which they wouldn't have accessed before, just because of this app and because of the safety in numbers that the app offered. So people would meet in groups to walk through the city. And what type of engagement and, and, and engagement were they actually having with the urban environment and the spaces around them? And initially we found that it was a very superficial engagement. People would literally just go into the city to take photos, just to showcase, well, here I am, and look how edgy I am, look how cool I am. But then as time progressed and they would engage more with the space, and their engagement would deepen. 
they would start recognizing features in the city, they would start immersing themselves a bit more in the space. And that's exactly what my experience was. My first few engagements were perhaps quite superficial. It was more about the novelty of walking around in the city. But then I became immersed and I understood the city and I understood the, the urban environment around me a lot more through those engagements. So in a nutshell, that is what the paper was about. And it was exciting research, but also challenging because I am not trained as a cultural geographer and I soon realized that this topic actually had to be pushed in a much more cultural geography direction. And I'm more trained as an urban and economic geographer and that is also based on my supervisor's um, skill set. So I was a bit hesitant in pursuing a topic that had very fluid boundaries for a PhD. I was working full-time, and I wanted a safe PhD that had boundaries around it that I knew I could finish it easily within three years. So I opted for a much safer topic, which was studentification, that I knew had set boundaries around it. The Instagram topic, as interesting as it was, and I really loved the, 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 the interesting literature that I had to read up on, and, and it, it was incredibly enriching experience, but I realized that for a PhD topic, it would become very cultural and it won't be an easy PhD. So do I regret not pursuing it? Possibly. I think it would have been a lot more interesting than student housing, but I don't regret going down the route of studentification where there were set boundaries, a definite outcome that I knew I could finish this within three to four years. I think the, the Instagram uh, paper would have, or the Instagram angle would have been a lot more complex as a PhD. But yeah, in terms of uh, circling back to conducting research on a hobby, I think it is a wonderful experience because you are so deeply immersed in what is that you're doing and you have a passion for it. You already have access to participants. You, you would already have insider knowledge through years of participant observation in an ethnographical sense. You will already know what is going on within that particular setting. So for me, the Instagram paper was basically writing about what I knew and something that I was practicing for the past uh, four or five years before that and I had access to all the people and the, the organizers I had a solid understanding of the application so it was actually fairly easy but when it came to positioning the research into a broader theoretical framework that is when I realized oh okay it, it becomes a bit more complex and a bit more challenging it is slightly outside my field of expertise it's a bit more cultural so I hope that answers your question, because that was one of the main reasons why I didn't really continue with it, is that I felt it became a bit too culturally focused, which I don't necessarily subscribe to 100%. I find it so interesting that you're raising this issue of boundaries, and you're talking about boundaries in terms of theoretical background, boundaries in terms of fields of geography, and this morphing into the cultural geography space. And boundaries in terms of the size of a project and the ability to do it within mm -hmm. a specified time frame. 
But I wonder about the boundaries between home and work, if you were to have continued it. And you spoke about how every weekend for five years, you were going into the inner city and being part of this community and really enjoying your time exploring. And and you really talk about it with a tone of adventure and whether you've reflected on whether the boundary between home and work, the boundaries between studying and hobbies would have been blurred if you'd gone the route of doing a PhD on Instagram or writing far more extensively on Instagram and the academic process that's involved and, and whether that would have perhaps dulled your enthusiasm and your enjoyment. It's hard to tell because I didn't go down that route, but possibly. I mean, I, I see a lot of people hating their topic uh, at the end of the three or four year yeah. period. And uh, I would have hated for me to go down that route and then end up not enjoying those experiences anymore. So it's it, it's a tricky question. I would say yes and no. I mean, it's hard to say. I'm passionate about student housing, which is absolutely ridiculous. I thought I would never be passionate about something as dull <laughs> as student housing, but I am. So I think my passion would have remained for Instagram and the sense of community that it created. But you would just have to have very clear boundaries where, and there I'm using the word boundaries again, that you don't allow the research and the work that you put into it to to take the joy out of it. And I've always viewed my research, any type of research that I do as a creative process. I think that's where I find joy in my research is the creativity that I bring to it. And you are essentially a writer and you are crafting a piece of writing. And that in itself is a creative process, no matter what the topic is. So I don't really have an answer for you, Jen. I I won't know if I would have ended up hating (laughs) Instagram (laughs) or the Instameets. But that said as well, from 2018, 19 onwards, and obviously because of the pandemic, that entire community has dismantled it it doesn't exist anymore so those instameets and that entire what would you call it that entire experience of going into the inner city because of various issues also crime uh, increasing in parts of the inner city photographers being targeted and then obviously the pandemic as well a lot of those activities have unfortunately disappeared but they are starting to re-emerge I am actually considering, and the paper that I've been working on now quite recently has looked at social media and the use of social media in urban revitalization, but I don't look at Instagram specifically, I look at different forms of social media. So I am circling back, I do have an interest in social media and its use in the city. Even in my PhD, a big part of my methodology in my PhD, even though it was student housing, focused on using netnography and Facebook groups as a way of accessing ethnographic, virtual ethnographic data in a sense. So my interest was maybe not just Instagram per se, but it was more focused on social media in the city. So in a sense, I've kept that. I've just applied it in different forms and in different contexts. Yeah. I have two very different questions and I'm trying to think which order to ask them in, but I think the one that flows most easily right now is about talking about having these ideas on the back burner that you can circle back to. And I think 
those are so important when you're in a position such as yourself, you've just finished your PhD in the height of COVID and you're now in a lecturing position and you now need to start crafting this independent research trajectory and being able to justify to probation committees and staffing and promotion committees that you are not just the product of your supervisors and that you are able to work on new projects outside of the PhD. And this certainly is sounding like an avenue that you've kept going strongly enough that you can tap into it. But perhaps you want to discuss that, whether you're likely to start to explore the re-emergence of Insta walks, whether that's something that's sort of sitting there on your to-do list and how you're trying to craft this new research trajectory as a post-PhD lecturer. Definitely. There's no point in reinventing the wheel and starting complete new topics from scratch. You work with in a space that you're comfortable in. There are always going to be offshoots from any type of research that you do that are worth pursuing. And it already gives you that base. Yes, it will be different. It will be different enough from a master's or a PhD that it can be seen as independent research, but you're not completely starting from scratch with a whole new theoretical or a methodological base. So there are a few fundamentals that I would stick to, and that is my particular methodological approach that I've crafted over the past few years that I can apply to various topics. And that is important for me because that is what I'm comfortable in as well. It's something that I've crafted and I feel that I'm good at. So that is why I keep on circling back to the use of social media, but then just applying it in different contexts. So it is still creating new knowledge, new research, but you are returning to a familiar old favorites and just applying it elsewhere. And it is challenging. I mean, finishing off a PhD and then and I struggled with that last year, I had a very short window to submit a a funding application or grant application internal to the institution for funding support for young academics. And it required me to write a proposal. And I couldn't think of anything because I was so fresh out of the, the PhD and it couldn't be related to the PhD. Obviously, it was looking for evidence of post PhD research. And it struck me that, oh dear, (laughs) what am I going to focus on after the PhD? And I'm still in a little bit of a lull, to be honest. It's been a year after the PhD. I started a new job at the University of Pretoria. And obviously I have a bit of sense now of of what I will do. There's a lot that still has to happen from the PhD. And I know a lot of people always give that answer, but it can be applied in more unique angles so you can still stick with so so studentification was my phd but i'm interested in broader student geographies so i would possibly then branch out and say okay well i've got this base in studentification but what about different aspects that are not necessarily related to student housing but maybe related to student entertainment or the nighttime economy or issues around students and noise students and crime so it's taking your base which you have a great understanding of because you've been working on this topic for the past four years but then it's finding those little offshoots that are related to but also new research so that is what I'm, that's the space that I'm currently in, 
But I always believe having a little pet project on the side. And that was what Instagram was for me back in 2016. And at the moment, I've returned to that again, where I'm looking at creative placemaking and the use of social media in the revitalization of a park in Johannesburg. So for me, those are little creative outlets where I can play and explore and be ridiculous. (laughs) And then I have the safe option of my base, my foundation. And then I have these different offshoots I can build from on that. And I hope that answers your question. It really does. And I think the number of excellent things you're saying for anyone else who's in a similar position or going into a similar position, but about identifying the things that you can use again and again in different settings and not reinventing the wheel, having the safe project and the fun project, because I think that's what keeps us going. And then also recognizing that what might seem like our current research trajectory could twist and change very quickly over time and that we're not set on one thing that's going to be our career. You're not going to be working on studentification for the rest of time. But also, as you said, I mean, if you'd started a a PhD on InstaWalks and then they all but evaporated by 2019, 2020, that would be a really terrifying place to be in because you'd be writing about something that no longer exists. And that's difficult to frame. So I think it's also about having projects that are small enough that they can be immediate in nature Mm. and that they can twist and turn through time. So the other question I was going to ask, and I'm taking us back to Instagram, and I think it relates a lot to to some of this new work you're doing, is about reflecting on your positionality. Because if we talk about studentification and the development of student housing in areas such as Bramfontein, as somebody who hasn't lived in student Mm -hmm. residence or student housing, you had a very objective position. But when you're talking about InstaWalks as an InstaWalker and somebody who is very involved in that community, you've spoken about how that gave you tremendous access to the people who are taking part in the walks, the people who are organizing the walks, is how you have reflected on and maintained clarity in terms of your positionality in these two very different kinds of settings. And I suppose a third setting would then be in cases of the urban creative industries in places such as Mabining, where you are not actively producing those creative industries, but you're certainly taking part in those urban spaces. Mm. Look, positionality is something that requires constant reflection and it, it will differ depending on what you're researching. Certainly the Instagram paper was easy in the sense that I had immediate access and I was part of the group. So there was a lot of trust between me and the participants that I were interviewing or surveying at the time, and people were willing to participate quite easily. So definitely that helped shape a much more personal approach to the research and perhaps also a lot more passionate, perhaps maybe not as critical. Because you are part of so deeply immersed in what it is that you do, that you're not as objective as much as you would be because you're so deeply embedded in the hobby itself. So with my positionality in in the studentification research that I did, it definitely having access to the students, having access to the university really did help. 
even though the power um, imbalance of me being a, a lecturer and a white male lecturer at that, largely conducting research on a black student population that are mostly from working or working class or poor backgrounds, obviously did present a challenge, but it required me just to spend a lot of time building up that report, building up that relationship with the students. And the use of student assistance here helped a lot to act as recruiters, to be that bridge between me and my participants. So yeah, I think it's always important to approach any research that you do uh, and to reflect on your positionality before you even get started. So I would always start out with a situational analysis of who are the stakeholders, who's involved, what are the power dynamics between these different stakeholders? Where do I fit in? Uh, Can I relate? Will I be able to get access? And I've struggled before. My research on creative industries and um, studentification also involves gaining access to property developers who are notoriously difficult to get hold of. And they're not willing to chat to you because they scared you some industrial spy. So it's tricky, irrespective of who you're talking to or, or who you're looking at. And, and what the top or whatever the topic is, it, it requires reflexivity. It requires thoughtful, a very thoughtful engagement on how you're going to go about your positionality. Yeah, I'd agree completely. The last question was going to be a question that needed a very long answer, but in so many ways, you've touched on it throughout our conversation, which relates to the passion that you have for research and for academic writing and how you really do see it as a creative outlet. Because the question was going to be how you managed to survive completing a PhD in a remote location, both in terms of the fact that we were all remote, we weren't face-to-face, but more importantly, you had moved out of Johannesburg, you'd moved into a rural area, and lockdown hit, and you had to complete the PhD. So I'm sure a large part of the answer is stuff you've touched on about Mm. the importance of framing your job and your research as a creative enterprise, as something you're passionate for. But Uh, Hopefully we won't have any more of our students going through this under the same Mm. conditions. I think we've learned a lot through COVID about whether or not a lockdown helps us in curtailing the spread. But I think many people can relate in terms of having to go back home to a rural area and write up in more isolated conditions than they used to. I think for many people, just having to say, I don't have time to socialize, I need to finish my PhD becomes Mm. isolating. And so perhaps some final reflections on that process and what worked and didn't. It's going to sound terrible, but for me, it was wonderful. It was a forced sabbatical, in a sense. There were no distractions of the outside world. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, there was a global pandemic unfolding. (laughs) So I had to be very careful in what I consumed. So I would limit my consumption of news to the evenings. I wouldn't start my day with the consumption of news and the latest COVID-19 figures, infection rates and figures, because then that would set the mood for the day, which is not a very great mood. So I was very careful in protecting myself from the outside world. I would start my day with a two hour writing session. I would have an hour break and then I would do another two hours writing session. And then if I really felt up to it and I had enough energy, I would do another hour or two after that. So I would do up to six hours of writing a day. 
I had a very strict deadline of having to finalize a chapter each month. So I gave myself seven months, a chapter a month. So I had these strict deadlines for myself, which helped. I had a strict writing schedule, which helped. The fact that COVID happened and that we had to shift to online teaching and we were just doing panic mode and emergency teaching at that stage where a lot of it was just pre-recording your lecture and uploading it onto the learning management system, which is not great for the students, unfortunately. I do recognize that, but it was great for me. It didn't require me to physically go to a class. So a lot of that time was then used more productively to write. So it, it was not an ideal situation. It was a very bizarre situation, <laughs> but it is a situation that helped me finish the PhD. And I look back at that period of time thinking, how did I manage it? How did I manage to shut out the world? But I think that's a, 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 a critical skill to have. Your mood, your, your setting, all of that influences how much you write, what you write, and yeah, even to this day, I would not start my morning with news. I would do my most productive work in the mornings and then I'll consume news and, and various other things later on in the day when, my, when I allow my mind to become, become cluttered. Yeah. But for the most part, I try to leave my mind completely uncluttered when I'm writing and I find that it's best in the mornings. And each pe person will be different. Some people are more productive in the evening. Some people are more productive at different times of the day. So for me, that worked. For me, it was essentially shutting out the outside world as much as possible, setting deadlines for myself, and just sitting down and writing yeah. and trying to enjoy the process as we go along. <laughs> You started your answer by saying it's bad to say this, but COVID was the best thing that happened. And I think, I mean, we're all very careful about being cognizant of the huge losses and hardships people have faced mm. during the pandemic. But I think that what's come out throughout our conversation is the importance of how you frame your experiences. We started our discussion with you talking about the rejection of your first paper when it was submitted as a conference proceeding, but how that allowed you to dig deeper, to think critically, and to publish in a peer-reviewed journal, which actually carries greater weight than a conference proceeding. And in a way, we've come full circle to being able to say that this really difficult time in all of our lives during COVID-19 and being isolated and being in a faraway place away from your majority of your friends and family had benefits and advantages to it. And I think it speaks to your personality, but it also speaks, as you've been saying, to the importance of actively framing your mindset, actively framing your intentions and being able to see the work that you're doing as not just the slog that you have to get through, but something that's meaningful to you, something that's meaningful to the world around you and something that brings you joy. And I think all of those are such a nice breath of fresh air that we so seldom hear in academia. There is a lot of discussion around the harms of the peer review process and rejection. There's so much discussion about the harms of having to work remotely. So thank you, JJ, for bringing this really positive slant, but not, not a kind of toxic positivity. It's really a practical positivity of saying to us, how can you take away news in the early morning and 
create mm. deadlines for yourself rather than those imposed by your supervisors. And if I can just add, Jennifer, it is also, it's really going to be so individual. Yeah. I don't have a family. I'm not married. I don't have small children. So it was easy for me. And I know for a lot of other academics, it wasn't easy because then all of a sudden they had to balance family life with work life, having small kids at home. So my situation cannot really be taken as a blueprint of how to do it. So it worked for me in my particular context, but definitely it wouldn't have worked for a lot of other people. For other people, it might have actually been a much more difficult time and a less productive time than normally. Absolutely. And as you say, there, there is no blueprint. It's not as though you're an anomaly and that there are 5,000 academics who all followed a, a different path and it worked for all of them. Mm. But we need to recognize that how we approach our work is about trying to maximize what is important to us, our own core values, and then how to bring about the most enjoyment and keep reminding ourselves of why we've chosen to go down this path, whether that path is a permanent career in academia, or if it's just saying, I'd like to do a master's now, or I'd like to do a PhD, and reminding yourself of why you made that choice. Definitely. So thank you so much, JJ. It's been wonderful talking to you. And I think this is a lot for us all to think about in terms of framing our creativity, framing our enjoyment, and being able to build on work that really speaks to us and that you can get to a point where you are passionate about something like student housing. <laughs> Thank you so much, Jen. It was wonderful chatting to you. And I'm just happy to share this. It's a process. It's a craft. I constantly think of it as a craft. And it's a craft that I'm passionate about. And as I progress in my career, I'm enjoying it even more and more because you grow as a scholar. You write much better as you progress. And it's something that should be enjoyed. It shouldn't be loathed. Absolutely. Thank you, Jennifer. Thanks, JJ. Thank you for listening to this episode of Revise, Rebut, and Resubmit. I hope that the conversations that we had today give you a degree of inspiration and insight into the experiences that another early career researcher, just like you, has followed in the process of writing up, revising, resubmitting, and having their first paper published. Hopefully from this conversation, you've had some greater insight and the process has been demystified. Thank you for listening to this episode. And if you'd like to listen to more episodes, you can follow us through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or most other podcasting platforms. A huge thank you again to Genus, the DSI NRF Center of Excellence for Paleosciences for most generously supporting this podcast and the broader endeavor of engaging with early career researchers and helping them in the publication journey.